and welcome to Conversations on Climate. My name is Chris Caldwell and this series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. We sit down with the experts who are trying to solve the biggest challenge of our time before time runs out. Today we're speaking to Yarov Cohen, a well-known international speaker, business leader and innovator who's joining us from Abu Dhabi. Yarov specializes in building value-added businesses and technologies in the developing world and has created portfolios of energy transition assets valued at over a billion dollars. His latest venture provides distributed solar to over 12 million individuals in sub-Saharan Africa, changing lives as well as supporting the environment. A holder of an MBA from London Business School, Yarov has enjoyed a highly diverse and international career, including roles as investor, developer, entrepreneur, TV commentator, mathematician and lecturer. Yarov is an engaging man of conviction who provides clear answers rooted in real-world business experiences. It's a conversation that you won't want to miss. Around 80% of people who listen to this podcast haven't hit the follow button. If I could ask you for a small favour, if you do enjoy our conversations, please do hit that follow button on your app. It would help us in the show more than I could possibly say. Thank you and enjoy the conversation. Yarov, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. It's you know, wonderful for out of your enormously busy schedule for you to sit down and spend an hour or so chatting to us. A pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. My, my absolute pleasure. So um, first off, I think we just need to note you've had an absolutely remarkable career and you've had uh, you've lived all over the world. Like you've been like Tel Aviv, TV commentator in China, lived in uh, Africa, Middle, Middle East, UK. Um, was kind of that international element, is that kind of part of your DNA or how did, how did that evolve? Uh, like everything in life, a bit of design and a bit of chance. Um, I was always curious about other cultures from an early age. Uh, and for me, the business world is a way to explore those cultures, to reach those places. Uh, I like to learn about other people. Uh, and through business, and especially climate business, which has no borders, I got a chance to be in, you know, a lot of those places. Some of them I just came, I liked it, stayed a bit longer and then a bit longer and lived there. Uh, in some places I thought before, oh, this is a place I want to explore, I want to go in and be in. Fantastic. And as well as kind of a global focus, one of the kind of overarching themes of your career has been an interest in, in climate and, cli- and climate tech. Where did that, that originate from in you? I think once, once you get exposed to it and you get exposed to the problem and what could happen and how broken things are and how easy it is to fix them, you just get, get into it. So you start a little bit, you develop a project, and then more and more and more and more. And we can see that globally. So when, when I started, no government really mentioned it. There was this Kyoto Agreement, some people signed up, no leader mentioned it in a conversation. And today, everywhere, I just came back from Los Angeles, from the Milken Summit, and climate is one of the key topics that they talk about. In the deep capitalist conversation, that's part of it. Uh, and I think that's a journey that everybody, once you see it, you get into. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, no, fully agree. Yeah, it was kind of similar enough journey to my own where I uh, was, was in investment banking for a number of years and then uh, decided, no, there, there must, be, must be more to life than this. <laughs> and, uh, you know, climate, climate bits and once it, once it bites, it, it gets a hold of you and uh, you end up uh, you know, being very happy dedicating uh, your, your time and energies to it. But let's, let's kind of move on and talk about your, 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 your current business. Um, it's a um, remarkable distributed solar business uh, based in uh, sub-Saharan Africa primarily uh, called Ignite Power. 
Now, before we can move into the kind of the, the technologies or the kind of the more kind of mundane parts of it, could you give us a little description of of the business, but from the viewpoint of, of a customer? Oh yeah, for sure. So today there's close to a billion people without access to power. So imagine uh, a hut, I wouldn't even call it a house, three walls, two rooms in the middle of Africa, which is always dark. There's no floor and there's no light. And during the day, sometimes you get a little bit of light from the small windows. And during the night, you burn kerosene uh, to walk around, not to fall. Uh, and then we come and we offer them light. We offer them a solar panel, a battery, three lights, mobile charger, uh, and a radio. And suddenly that house becomes a home. The kids come in. They're not all the time outside. They can work longer. The woman is safer in the house uh, uh, to play. Uh, and then there's the phone charging, which when we started, it was about giving them light. And when we did surveys, they cared about the light. That was very important. They didn't have to go and um, get kerosene, was safer, no fumes. But now the main usage is to charge the phone. So they all have a phone and they charge the phone. And the interesting thing is when they have a consistent power supply, the kids start using the phone now. They didn't use it before because it was very precious. When the kid used the phone, we did further analysis, their English improves. So we started, let's give them light. And now we found out that we're impacting the education level of the kids just with something very simple, light. Brilliant. Just kind of to kind of pivot slightly from that, um, it seems to be that the main kind of motivation for people to, for, for, for yourself and for, the, for, for, for your customers is for kind of the improvements of quality of life. Um, just wondering, is, is climate change in any way a part of the, the, the considerations for, for your customers rather than, rather than yourself? So it's definitely a consideration of mine, of our investors and our partners. Most of our clients, they just want to live. They want to have the light. That's the most efficient resource that they have. They're interested that the kids can suddenly do revisions at night, which they couldn't do before. They're interested that it's safe. They're interested that they uh, can be a bit longer. They can work longer hours. For them, if it comes from the sun or from a different mean, is less relevant at this stage. Then afterwards, they become proponent. But a lot of them don't speak English and are not necessarily aware of climate change. They are aware of what it does to their field, what it does to the temperature, but not necessarily the whole, uh, the whole concept. Okay. Can take it into your own personal story for for, for a little bit. Um, you have been a, fair to say very successful uh, serial entrepreneur over time. To taking you back to like you know 2014 when you when you started Ignite, um, what kind of drove you to 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 be like starting again? Like just you know, starting starting out with a blank piece of paper with this particular business model. So I, I think there's there's probably two angles, like a lot of things. Um, prior to Ignite, I was leading a carbon a development company. So we built projects that do carbon abatement all over the world. That's led me to China. We had 140 projects there, Russia, Vietnam, America, and a little bit in Africa. And it was a global business with a big carbon impact on the world. Um, I retired from that business in 2012, and we had a small business back then in Africa. Not many projects, but I managed it and fell in love with the place and started traveling more and more and more going there. Um, and then at some setting, I met President Kagame for lunch in London. Um, and we started having conversation about energy, energy access, energy efficiency, energy generation. 
Um, and at that time, it wasn't that clear that solar energy or wind energy and hydro energy is better than others. And we started a debate on what form of energy is optimal. Um, following that lunch, I had a meeting with my friends in Bloomberg, and we published a paper. We researched Rwanda as a country, and we said, actually, Rwanda can become 100% renewable, and it's faster, and it's cleaner, and it's cheaper than going in the uh, regular route. So I published this paper as a white paper, hoping somebody will pick it up. Um, and then they asked me, can you help us make it happen? So from, um, let's say, a theoretical debate to a little bit of investing in time to a small donation in making the, the project, it became a business. And that business now connected two and a half million people. We employ about 3,500 agents in multiple countries, and, and we're growing. Um, but that was not planned that I want to start another business. It just organically happened. Um, I was quite aware of the um, economics because I used to do those projects with carbon financing. And then to connect a home to power was something like $1,000. And when I looked at Ignite in 2014, it was suddenly from $1,000, it went to 200 So I said, okay, that's an interesting curve that's happening here. And now we're talking below 100 so that enabled this whole um, um, business model of selling to the bottom of the pyramid profitably and quickly. Yeah, it's, it is quite amazing to think. Uh, in this world over here, uh, where you know, we look at um, distributed solar um, as a business model, uh, we've got a pretty much an obsession about subsidies and an obsession about, you know, it cannot work sustainably without having, having kind of go, big, big parts of government support. But uh, where you were developing, there was you know, very little kind of um, subsidy support. How can you kind of explain that difference between why, how we, we believe in a place where um, there's a, there, there is a massive role for a distributed solar, uh, but it, we believe it can't work unless you have subsidies, but in a, in a relatively uh, lower income part of the world, um, it's, 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 a, it's a great success. So I think that the first part is physics. Um, number of sun hours that you would get during the day. The efficiency of a panel in, on the equator is much better than a, um, a panel in the UK. So you get a lot more power. Second thing is what are you comparing it to? If there's nothing there, building up a new grid is quite expensive. That cannot happen. Um, so that's the second dimension. The third dimension is what are you doing with the power? So if you want to power a fridge, an industrial fridge in somebody's house when they eat two meals a day with no kids, it makes no sense to use the power in the first place or to use solar power. If you're using LED lighting, if you use efficient cooling, if you use efficient pumps, then suddenly less power can bring you a lot more yield, a lot more output. And all of it comes into the pricing at the end of the day. Um, and then how many hours of day do you want it? Is it full day? Is it just a solar? Because solar doesn't work at night. We need to put the battery storage. So the optimization works really well, first of all, to places with no power. That's the one we're going into, easy. Then to start saving costs between um, peak tariff and low tariff, uh, and so on and so on. And the cost of solar, the cost of lithium, continuously going down. So we're seeing more and more domains where it's become economically competitive without subsidies as the costs are changing. And especially when we used to have cheap gas from Russia, it's difficult to compete any other form of energy. 
suddenly that gas is no longer that cheap. Okay, so we see a, 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 a flood of solar uh, distributed installation in Germany, which we didn't see that three years ago. And um, how, does, how does pricing work? It's like a, a price per kilowatt. Um, does it vary during the day or, like how, how, or is it a fixed price no matter what? Or how, how, do, you, how do you deal with that? So it depends. Uh, the smaller systems are fixed price. The marginal cost is zero. So you basically need to cover the system plus uh, the profit to make it work. Uh, the bigger system, then you can start doing more advanced modeling of mostly about consumption, not yet about the timing of, uh, of um, usage yet. Um, so you mentioned the energy crisis in, in Europe. And, um, you know, in this part of the world, again, we've been kind of going through a kind of a existential crisis about you know, what, our, what our energy system should be looking like, how we're going to be designing it, how we can be, be getting off um, our addiction to, to Russian uh, oil, oil and gas. Um, some of the answers have been pretty unsatis unsatisfactory by like, firing up old coal, old coal plants. But, net, but on net, we've been leaning more into renewables. So hopefully, you know, at the end of the day, it'll be, it'll be a, kind of a, a net positive on the energy tra transition in Europe. Um, you have suggested that, that a similar kind of thought process is happening in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, where the energy prices have been making people look more seriously at renewables. Is that right? So I would say it's even started before. Um, so Africa is a bit shielded from the other um, shocks. Energy is expensive regardless of the, the Russian gas price. Um, however, they've been going on a process of um, understanding. So when I first started, the prevailing view is everybody should be connected to the grid. Why? Because that's how it happened everywhere else. Then there was an understanding which took quite a few years. It's quite expensive. And some of those places can never afford. So you connect a house that uses three lights to a grid, it will never cover the cost of the cable getting there. Um, so now you extrapolate it forward. Why not use mini grid? Why not use household solar? So now the leadership of those countries is starting to understand, together with the World Bank, together with others, that there has to be an energy mix. Some will be connected to the grid. My view is only the big consumers, steel, cement, and so on. Some will be connected to microgrids, so in a region. And some, or actually most, will just need enough power to connect it to a household solar that will um, light them up. And then the mix is something that is constant changing, constant uh, uh, analyzed, uh, because how quickly can you deploy, how good the systems are, what is the cost of the time, and how much money do the governments actually have to spend on that. One of the kind of really interesting parts about um, Ignite is how you're not just focusing in on energy as, as a singular problem. Um, you have all this consideration. I think you mentioned some of them earlier on. It's about education. It's about um, you know, cooking you know, you have kerosene, oil in there, and all the, f the fumes that uh, then, then comes into people's lungs. Um, what do you see the inter intersection between um, the kind of clean technology and, and um, other kind of developments and justice issues? So we see ourselves as a distributed infrastructure. So everything that has a cable today, we want to remove it. So what do you use? What, what, con what is connected to your house today? First of all, power. Then you need the gas for the cooking. Actually, we know how to replace that. Water, we know how to do solar pumps. Internet access, we know how to use a satellite. So essentially, we can provide the same modern access that you would need, lots of cable, pipes, uh, fiber to your home without it. And it just makes a lot more sense. 
Now, some of them are already very developed, like the energy. Some are developing, like water. And some are in the near future where you can provide reliable internet access anywhere you want without a need for even a, even a cell tower. If we're looking at kind of the, one of the kind of the differences between kind of you know, making develop, development here, here and there, or maybe even similarities, um, I know from my own experience of being a developer of renewable energy assets, my problem isn't technology. You know, my problem isn't even finance. Problem is really it, it's, it, it's the regulation. You know, it's the the infrastructure in and around it. It's the um, the legislation that's written. It's the, the the interest groups. It's the you know the na- the neighbours. Um, it's all of that stuff that takes it takes up the vast majority of time, um, rather than kind of you know technical issues or financing issues. Is it the same? With, you know, in your experience, or, or or different? So we have all of those, but also we have the big one about getting it done. So. You sign a contract in the UK and you develop a project, you go to the contractor, you have an EPC, he gets the equipment, he gets the project done. We operate in villages in the middle of far away. Uh, getting there is hard. Customs, water, rain, floods, workforce, and so on. And interestingly enough, that's where the technology comes in. The technology about management of that big workforce, making sure there's constant delivery in a lot of houses, in a large scale that ramps up and all products are lost. So we are a technology company, but the technology is not on the solar panel. It's about how do you get the ex- execution in places that are, are difficult. On one aspect, the first part is we have it, but it's smaller. So with putting a wind farm somewhere, is, there's a lot of regulation you need to do. We are households, so we don't need as much of that. Getting it done, working with it is more of a challenge. And now once we crack it in a country, then you can ramp up. So it seems like there, you need to be very innovative in your kind of distri- distribution systems as well, and your logistic systems as well as, their, as your, your, your physical infrastructure that you're putting in place. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about um, your views on innovation and particularly how it kind of feeds into your, your very innovative kind of business models that you've been, you've been um, responsible for? So I think the first part was that we had a pay-go lock. So every one of the system locks until they pay us. And we use mobile money to get paid. But then COVID happened. So now, how do you manage a remote workforce far away working from home? So we had to very quickly develop all the tools, distributed call center, distributed service, optimization routes of where you go on the motorcycle, because suddenly you can only put one person on the motorcycle, not two. Um, Some of our staff suddenly, they're not allowed to go, and then they have to go from a different place. So our ability to map a country, to be able to optimize where people go, be able to verify, be able to take pictures of all the location of what happened, because I cannot send somebody to check. And it's very easy to take the system, put it somewhere else and sell it or put it in a house. GPS tagging of each location, predicting where the problem would be, understanding why customers are not paying from the data. All of those tools we had to develop, uh, which became a very strong enabler post-COVID. So... COVID forced us to be digital, which now we're bearing the fruit from. Fantastic, yeah. Wow, makes, makes my life seem very straightforward, <laughs> very easy. Um, yeah, because before talking to you, uh, the idea of um, putting solar, uh, developing out solar as an, as an infrastructure project, to distribute solar as an infrastructure project, seemed pretty kind of nuts and bolts. It seemed like something that shouldn't be that technically difficult. But now understanding a little bit more about you know, the, the, the issues on the ground, 
um, you get a much, much stronger feel of that. But you also seem to be suggesting that there's roles for kind of advanced technologies within that, within, within kind of your modelings, both, both of your energy flows, but also of your people flows. Do you have a kind of um, an artificial intelligence or, or kind of you know, data, big data analysis side of your business? We have it all across and it's continuously improving. And the new tools that come out that we utilize them enable a lot more interaction, a lot quicker analysis. Uh, but at the end, it's efficiency. To connect one home to power is easy. To connect 500 homes, you know, we can get it done. To connect 100,000 homes in a very short time without losing a lot of system, providing constant level of service, yeah, that becomes a big data play. Um, also from the geospectral of understanding the ground and also the data. If people are not paying, we need to know why quickly. If they are paying great, what did we do right? Is the pricing correct? Is there a problem? We just saw there's a flood. Is the flood really impacting us, the rains, or not? Do we need to send the team? Sending a team is expensive. If we can figure it out before, that saves us a lot of time. Um, and it seems like kind of a common theme here seems to be that um, you're going into areas where there's no existing kind of grid infrastructure. Uh, so it allows you to, kind of to, to leapfrog that step. Um, is, that, is, that, is that a kind of a fair thing to say? And if it is, do you see any other kind of potentials for kind of similar kind of leap, leapfrogging in the, the energy sector uh, where, 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 you are, where you're operating? So it's easier because we don't have incumbents. It's hard because there's nothing there. We need to educate them. But that's complete leapfrogging, um, jumping a level. The same is the, the water infrastructure. If your water infrastructure comes from a solar pump that we just put there, you just leapfrogged on the pipe. Um, cooking is the same, and the internet access is the same. They're all leapfrogging, and things that will come back to our side of the world much quicker than people think, like what happened with the distributed uh, energy side. Mm-hmm. Okay. And do you want to talk a little bit about the, the, the works you do with, with water and um, the kind of providing access to water and purifying? Uh, so we do solar pumps that are super efficient. They are in a trolley. Um, we do, we call it pay as you harvest. So the customer pays us when they harvest and they can increase the yield three times. If they, even if they have a diesel pump, getting the diesel moving around is not really uh, easy and it's polluting and it's polluting the field and it's complicated. We provide solar pumps and they're going quite good. As well as being an entrepreneur, you're also a kind of an impact investor. How did you start as an impact investor in developing countries? Uh, so I'll start, first of all, the status of impact investing. I think I'm, I'm a mathematician, so I look at trends. And now it's much, back, much more interest, much more capital than it was last week and the week before and the week before. So we are on a trend, and that trend is exponential. When we're talking about the younger generation, how did they say it? I don't want to make more money for the 1%. That's when they come and work for us. Okay. You can make money and you can have an impact. And we don't have a shortage of good people wanting to work for us because it's like climate. Once you made an impact, you feel so good, you want to continue doing it in the future. And I think uh, impact investing is kind of a personal journey, is understanding what is the impact you want to create on the world. So kind of soul searching, what do you really care about? Okay, I care about development in, in countries. What can I do with my time? What can I do with my job and what can I do with my money to advance that at every stage of the way and then measure if what I wanted to do is actually happening on the ground. So putting money in something and then saying, oh, we impact that without thinking in advance what you want to achieve, for me, is not impact investing. It's post-rationalization why the investment didn't go well or went well. 
Um, when you say, I want to connect people to power because it saves lives, I'm going to invest my capital. On top of the return, I'm going to connect X number of people. That's a good investment. Uh, and we see a lot more sophistication, especially today when everything is digital and you can suddenly get a pass through for your investment, understanding exactly what happened and verify it. There's obviously a lot, of, a lot of issues in the world now which is slowing down the development of renewables. Uh, high inflation, meaning high interest rates. Um, scarcity of supply. Um, uh, slowing down of supply chains, deglobalization, all of these, these kind of your negative impa impacts on the, on the growth of renewables. Um, have you seen that impact, uh, that's having an impression upon what, you, what you're trying to achieve? So on one, on one side, there's all that impact. On the other side, if you look at all the investments, the only area of investment that hasn't shrunk and is actually increasing is climate investment. That's the only part of the investment world that is still holding on because the need is so high. So yeah, all of those are operational constraints, but we have to do it. Yeah. Oh, no, no, fully agree. Um, but that also does uh, increase competition and competition for scarce resources. So like solar panels are a scarce resource. Um, the, 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 the wait list to be getting new, so new panel, panels shipped, you know, it can be long times. Is, are, how are you dealing with that type of issue? Uh, because you're, you're, you're operating in a part of the world where you can be outbid. So like if it's like a lot of money has gone into, for example, the United States because of the Inflation Reduction Act. So prices have tended to be bid up globally for that. Does that how, do you, how do you deal with that kind of you know, competitive market? Um, so we order earlier, we wait a bit longer, but that's a small part of our complexity, the logistics on bringing in the supply. The big part is the operation. So this is a small impact compared to increases in food prices, pressure on governments, their uh, ability to borrow. Uh, so this is more concerning to me uh, than the other. And, and, and it's still, it's very important so adjusting pricing, both us and the governments, uh, and just putting a high priority to get it done. Okay. And when you say adjusting pricing, that's, that's pricing for the end consumer, um, so the, the, the customer that the pays. So, it, it, so that's, that's regulated by the, by the government? You have a conversation with the government about, well, we want to charge this amount per kilowatt. Is that, is that how that works? So we always have a conversation. Sometimes it's regulated. Um, but it's also linked to what tariffs are being paid, what taxes are being paid, and that's an on con ongoing conversation. If we remove tariffs, if we remove customs, then the pricing will change. Um, so some countries, some location, it's uh, set. Some others, it's open. Uh, and we, we have every, every permutation of those uh, somewhere in, in Africa. I had an interesting conversation with um, an LBS professor by the name of uh, Rajiv Chandi, um, who's uh, chair of the, the Wheeler Institute, uh, which does a lot, a lot of good work, but his, speciali his speciality is entrepreneurship in uh, developing markets. And what his take of the world was that, um, that we over here are not entrepreneurs. We, well, there's such a tiny fraction of us are entrepreneurs. But if you go around Africa, a majority of people are entrepreneurs, just by, by, by definition. Like it's not, we all kind of aspire to be working for, you know, for, 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 for big, big firms and being kind of small, part, small parts of big machines. But in Africa, the norm is to be kind of self-employed. Um, so the whole idea of entrepreneurship in Africa is, is at least in, in Rajesh's um, kind, of, kind of view, is really quite different to entrepreneurship uh, in, in, in the country, the, the global north. Um, what's, what's your take of the difference between entrepreneurship um, from you, know, you, you, yourself and myself as a, you know, a kind of business school graduates and you know, entrepreneurship for, in, in Africa and the places that you're, you know, you're, you're currently operating? Uh, so, so I'll start. I think in Israel, an entrepreneur is 
the goal is to make an exit. That's the goal. Uh, in the UK, is to create a business. Uh, in Africa, sometimes, it's just to get a job, get by. The key skill of all entrepreneurs at the end of the day is problem solving. We allow each one of our countries to operate almost, I wouldn't say independently, but set the goal by itself with support from the center. So in a way, each one of those is a different business led by an entrepreneur, entrepreneur. Um, so the talent, the talent on those items, on problem solving, on ability to persist, on uh, finding a new market of changes is much stronger, much deeper in Africa than it is in other countries. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, that leads on to another point that, uh, that the Professor Chanti uh, made, that his main source of kind of comfort and optimism for the, for the world of tomorrow and the climate change world of tomorrow doesn't come from the West or the, the, the geographic North. It comes from, from Africa, from, from emerging markets, from developing markets, where he sees um, the, the, you know, the guys and the girls on the ground there who are, who are working away um, as the people who will be solving those problems, because they're the guys who are living with it, who are, who are, who are at the, you know, the edge of the problems and issues that are happening. They're, de- they're seeing it first, they're dealing with it first, and they, are, uh, they have that type of you know, problem-solving um, you know, mentality towards life that they're who are going to be providing solutions to these problems as opposed to waiting on Silicon Valley to be, to be kind of, you know, sp- spitting something out. Uh, would, you, would, you, would you kind of care to comment on that? I think it's a combination of the two. It's the guys on the ground coming with a niche, being picked up or supported by techies from all over the world that help them devise both the technology and the business model and the operating model to make it happen on the ground. But I do see from India and from Africa solutions that are coming that are kind of taking the world by storm. So that are being moved either as the company itself or just the idea to the rest of the world. Well, we've had, like last year, we had a kind of a dip in overall kind of um, investment. Um, Africa um, got kind of three billion in, in tech startup funding, which is, you know, which, which, which was like a counter the trend of the, of the rest of the world. Could you tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of the, the entrepreneurial culture of Kenya or, or Rwanda and, you know, how it's shaped by their kind of the unique kind of culture and history? So, so I think, first of all, a lot of the tech is to improve what's happening. So if you have, I'll go to the most mundane story, you have a garbage truck. Uh, it does three houses a day. Suddenly you have uh, a payment system. It can do 10 houses a day because they can play and, uh, pay and order them. You add an optimization uh, component and suddenly it can do 20, hours, 20 houses a day. So there is a big scope for improvement on current businesses in Africa or in India that technology can improve them massively more than it would in other places where they're coming from a bit of a more efficient way. So what you see is the jump in technology is now they're addressing all of those in, in every domain. Let's implement technology. In order to implement technology, somebody set up the startup, whether it's insurance, whether it's uh, agriculture, whether it's so on. So, and we've seen that cycle, that cycle of improvement happen in multiple geographies over time. If you look at India, five years ago, that was the hottest place to be. Now, a lot of those gains have been achieved. So now it's a different type of startups. And now, now it's happening in, in, in Africa. And in Africa, each one is a bit different, though they're becoming a bit more uh, close to each other. In Nigeria, a lot more fintech. In Rwanda, there's a climate tech, there's agri-tech. Uh, in Kenya, there's all of that, plus some uh, um, media tech. 
that's happening, and each one starting to create ecosystem around it. Because every successful company creates a lot of know-how and a lot of motivation to do something similar in that domain. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting as the word similar. What have you seen that's unique that's coming from these type of these type of uh, infrastructures that might be uh, coming from? Um, yeah, the, there's the specific kind of you know historical and you know cultural differences in these countries. What's what, what's unique that's coming um, at the at the other end? So, so the first thing that came is mobile money. So when we were still with the credit card, everybody was paying me cents and dollars in in mobile money, and now it's it's everywhere you would see. And now that ability on mobile money gives them suddenly a new type of uh, identity. So now I have a different means of showing where my identity is. I have a different type of delivery system. Why? Because I don't only deliver to my house, I deliver to where I am because my phone is with me. So I can say I'm around here and that's the delivery of Amazon will come, will come to us. Uh, and so on and so on. So the, the infrastructure you have determines the solution that could happen and having mobile money, having no identity and no identity, having movable houses suddenly changes the application that will come about. We're seeing a massive electrification of the motorcycle sector in Africa. Um, it just makes a lot more sense, like we've seen in Beijing. So within three years, the whole of Beijing changed from uh, the, uh, the polluting bicycles to everything is electric. We're seeing the same in Africa happening as we speak. Interesting. And is that, um, are the charging points then kind of domestic or is there kind of a central kind of larger charging point for complicated. these? Complicated. Every, every, everything and more, including people that it will go and find you and bring you a battery. There are individual solutions for individual problems. Yeah. All right. Um, so you are, as I've kind of said before, kind of a serial entrepreneur and you're a serial entrepreneur in, a, in a markets where people would, would find it quite, you know, would typically find it quite quite difficult. Um, could you give us a little insight on what are the secrets to kind of good kind of seed level investments in in the developing world? I think for me the first and most important distraction is seeing that there is a market fit and in the developing work you can reach quite far with very little capital. You can have a client, you can start selling. I remember I was a judge at the tech crunch competition. Um, and all of them had fantastic presentations that they rehearsed on, but not necessarily as traction as we see in others. So don't work on the presentation, just get sales. You sold to five pharmacies. Okay, now I believe that you can sell to 50 or 500 or 5,000. Um, and we see a lot more entrepreneurs now that are starting this way. I want to start selling. I want to start building. I have the basic MVP. Let's go find a client. Found a client. Okay, now I know there is a market for this. How much we can argue, how long it will take you, how much will you make out of it? But we know there's a market. And um, how many um, uh, properties did you say that you, you have uh, put distributed solar on? We've connected about two and a half million people. Two and a half million people, my goodness. Um, and and we, are, we are present in 12,000 villages. 12,000 villages, my goodness. And are, are each of those villages kind of treated as special projects themselves? Um, or are they... Or, or do you to kind of treat, treat a region, a, a country? How do, how, how do you... So we usually have an agreement with the government to go in. Then we map the country based on socioeconomic information, based on difficult to reach, based on density, based on um, a lot of factors. We prioritize specific districts and then specific 
um, sectors and then specific villages and kind of optimize and go whatever the operation plan for that place is, is optimized to one of those or, or a few of those parameters. Okay. Do you do kind of project finance or do you do, um, is it kind of, is it government support? Is there IMF support or? This is obviously enormously positive impact you're making on the world. You'd hope that there would be some international organizations who'd be supporting you in this. So, so it's, it's all of the above. Uh, every three-letter acronym in the development world from IFC, World Bank, DFID, USAID has given us some kind of support at some place or the other. Probably, I think, all European countries, including Switzerland and uh, uh, Sweden, Norway, everybody has supported us one way or another. Um, and the capital structure is, is designed for each specific place, depending on the interest. Sometimes we get uh, result-based financing, we get paid for the installation. Sometimes we get grants. Sometimes we get concessionary loans. Sometimes we get quasi-equity. Um, everything, uh, every, a, a, any one of those and combination of them, we have. We have. Right, yeah. Seems like to, to, get, to hit, make that level of impact sounds like you really do need all, yeah. We have to be creative and, and a lot of supporters. This is not just us. All of them have supported us. Some of them supported us in really hard times where we really needed them um, from the governments to the different institutions. Uh, and some of them are supporting us to scale. So this is a, a team effort of m more people that I can mention in, this, uh, uh, in the podcast. Of course. Brilliant. Um, so if we could kind of shift track a little bit um, and kind of go back to, to one of your, kind of your earlier experiences and talk about kind of carbon markets. We've seen over recent days kind of carbon pricing has gone to, you know, to, to unprecedented levels, like over 100 euros um, a ton um, in the EU. Um, what's your assessment of the, the carb carbon markets today? Um, so I think it's a lot more complicated than it was. Um, it's a lot more regional. So I wrote a paper in 2012 that carbon markets will not be global. They will be regional and local because the problem is local. And if I want to support the business, I want to support it in my area. Um, and we're seeing a lot of that fragmentation, just the Zimbabwe announcement that their projects will, some of them will be allowed out and the others will not, or the India government wanting to keep more. And that's for me part of the ownership. The leaders are taking ownership of the problem and want to keep those uh, projects in the local market and develop them as they go. Um, and that's why we're seeing different prices for different projects. Uh, there's a huge difference in quality uh, in, in projects, and, and we're seeing different pricing for them. Uh, it's a great opportunity. It's a great opportunity for startups, for developers, for entrepreneurs, um, as it's becoming more and more complex and more and more targeted. I still believe, as I believed in 2008, that carbon markets are the most efficient way to create uh, carbon reductions. Why? Because capital goes to the most cost-effective source of the emission reduction at that time. And now add to it that, that you can decide if you want it local, if you want it um, uh, nature-based, if you want it energy efficiency, or if you want storage within uh, chemical ways to uh, uh, st um, capture carbon, which now is like $400 a ton. Um, each one of them is getting different pricing and it's becoming more and more sophisticated. And I think it's a good thing. Currently, you believe that markets uh, aren't fit for purpose, but 
we're moving in the right direction. Is that would that be that be right? And and if we are moving, if we're not moving in the right direction, what do we need to do to make them run efficiently? First of all, forget about a global market. We're having lots and lots of small markets because that's what the payer wants. That's what the consumer wants. So a, a UAE company wants to buy credit from a UAE project because they want to see the impact. They want to tell the story. Um, and they are becoming more and more. So the marketplaces, rather the exchange, are becoming more sophisticated and more fit for purpose. We're still in a, in a, in a stage where it all um, is forming. But the, way, the, the direction it's going is a higher focus on quality, higher focus on verification, technology, and uh, locality. Interesting. Um, but wouldn't that in itself be slightly inefficient? So, for example, if, if we're talking about kind of Africa as, as, as a continent, instead of having um, a whole series of individual car carbon markets. Um, now, I, admittedly, this is an absolutely a double-edged sword. Where, where you have people in, uh, let's say, the United States buying um, carbon credits from, uh, from a, a country in Africa who will have all the natural infrastructure there. And it, and it makes sense for, for, that, for, the, for money to go from the United States to be preserving forests, to be, to be planting new forests, to be carbon sinks, whatever, whatever it might be, because natural infrastructure is there. Now, the other side of that sword is you may then be permitting people in the U.S. to be not changing their, 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 their lifestyles, not changing their, their, their habits, to continuing to live an unsustainable lifestyle at the cost of people in Africa who aren't using that ton of carbon that's been taken to be uh, developing their own, um, their, their own infrastructure and their own, their, their own economies. So there's an enormous opportunity for the, 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 the positive flows of cash, but there's enormous risks attached to it too. So first of all, the, the fact that we're having that conversation is the good step. Because before that, okay, I wanna, where do I buy it? Now, people are more aware of both those sides and the balance in between them. So what would happen is some projects will be local. Some project, if Google is willing to pay $400 a carbon, uh, uh, a ton for sequestration of carbon in granite, great, go ahead. That's a great way to, uh, to create it. The, the customer, Google, Amazon, or, or you are becoming a lot more sophisticated what they want and what the impact is. And also the seller, the government in Africa wants to guarantee that they keep the right number of the right value for it. So it's not being sold for a buck and a half, but for 15. So when we were doing a project under CDM, the Chinese government decided those projects, the minimum price that an international buyer would buy is so on. Uh, and then they've created their own companies that are buying it and, and, and maturing and are able to use that carbon in other, in other countries. So if every country has a cap or a commitment, they need to start doing the thinking process, of, okay, how much I want to keep, how much I want to sell, uh, and that becomes a resource that we price. If we price the resource, we price the externalities, whatever the price is, and we price it in a dialogue, eventually it will land on an equilibrium. Okay. Um, and to get a efficiently functioning market, you need to have common standards. Um, so you know that a, like a ton of carbon um, bought in country A is equivalent to a ton of, a ton of carbon uh, in uh, country B. Um, now, we're quite far away from having you know, equivalency of standards, and you're going to have, if you're talking about more and more individual countries doing uh, their, their own markets, um, we're going to be, aren't we going to be creating all sorts of inefficiencies in that? So actually, we have a, a robust and finite number of methodologies that can determine how much carbon was saved. 
uh, under the UNFCC, under Gold Standard, under uh, Vera. Those are fairly developed. You can make changes. The changes are now are more of how do you verify that happened? Do I go and count trees? Do I hug them to see how wide they are to figure it out? Or can I do it from space? But that's on the verification side. What we don't have is the pricing. So each one of those projects of tons of carbon is worth a different amount. Why? Because they have other features. If I'm connecting African women to power and saving lives of kids, my ton of carbon is maybe more valuable than if we just read a reforestation project in Peru. So we don't have the common price, but I don't think we'll ever have one because each one is different. We do have robust and evolving ways to determine how much carbon is theoretically there and more and more technologies that are able to sell, tell us what has happened, verify it, and check it independent of the seller. Because if somebody tells me that I planted 500 trees, I want to independently verify it. If it's 500 trees and I need to go and send somebody to check it, may or may not be accurate what the guy tells me, it costs a lot of money and I have to put the risk that he's not telling the truth. If now I can do a satellite pass and I can immediately understand that, okay, now I can pay more for the carbon. So the development is in the verification side and in the pricing mechanisms. Mm -hmm, yeah, and in the trust and faith that you've got people there who will be looking after the trees and making sure that they're still there in one, two, three years. And how do you pay it? And that's in the payment mechanism over time. Trees is a specific problem because you're not there and bad things can happen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Trees are vital, but, but probably one of the most more difficult uh, ones to deal with. Like a biochar, you, you, you take a, a bit of carbon and you, you put it on the ground. And that's it. You don't worry about it for 100 years. But one of the th most interesting developments in this space recently has been the, the EU's uh, cross-border uh, carbon, uh, carbon tax. Um, now, this clearly is something that is a good thing in driving down kind of carbon emissions within, within the, the European Union. Uh, but the problem with any sort of tariff is that it can lead to, to again, to, to barriers to trade with the with develop, with developing world. Um, what do you think? On, on net, is, a, is the, the, the EU um, border tariff a, a good thing or bad? I think it's a good thing. And I think if you talk about it, they're talking, they're, there are compensation mechanisms to the countries where you want to do more trade with or uh, the trade is disadvantaged. There are different schemes of what can be allowed and what cannot be allowed. And like everything else, when it starts, it's not perfect. Uh, and then it's adapted, and improves, and, and it's a complicated problem. Let's everybody think, okay, we have a silver bullet. Global emission is a complicated problem. The physics behind it is complicated. We need to have complicated solutions that adapt over time to the situation. But we are making strides on each and every part of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like, I agree. It's a, it, it's a very important part of the whole whole piece, like we are going to overshoot 1.5, hopefully we won't overshoot 2, but we need to do a lot of work to not do that. And um, if we overshoot 1.5, we need to find ways of, of, of trying to pull that back a bit and also trying to um, decarbonize the really hard to decarbonize parts of, parts of uh, the economy. So having, having some way of extracting carbon, like inevitable carbon, near inevitable car carbon from the atmosphere is, is essential. We're a long way away from it, uh, you know, as, as we stand. Um, a lot of technology needs to be done. So um, as, we, as we, kind of, we look to wrap up, I think this has like been, been, been really like super interesting uh, conversation, uh, looking at all sorts of areas that, that uh, as a series, we haven't, we haven't really, really considered before. At the, the start of this season, uh, we interviewed uh, kind of the Dean of London Business School, uh, Dean, Dean, Dean Francois, 
and uh, we're talking about the kind of the role that business schools have in the world. What what advice would you give to to, to Dean Francois on um, what business schools can do more to open doors to working in, uh, in in kind of developing economies? I think present the opportunities. LBS is unique. It's very very international. You started this conversation about my internationalism. It probably was a desire, um, but. LBS gave me the tools and the understanding and the confidence to go about to strange places in the world and start interacting with people with some knowledge and, uh, on, on, on how to do it. Um, and I think we're seeing more of it uh, in other schools. And I think that trend is happening. Um, just make sure that the interactions are there, the opportunities are presented, the, the curriculum supports it in, in the right way and not strengthening stereotypes, but actually removing them. Uh, and we are in a good place from, from the business school crowd. The fragmentation of society is not the business school crowds that, that we're seeing today. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just as a, kind of, as a final question, what we t- tend to do is ask for a little piece of uh, advice to, uh, to viewers or listeners. Um, if, there, if there's somebody out there who's, who's been you know, kind of really interested in what you, you've had to say and would like to get involved either as an investor or as uh, someone who likes, wants, to, wants to do a startup in developing markets, what encouragement could you give them and where would you suggest it would be a good place to start? So I think, first of all, to start. Whatever it is leads you. This is a new industry uh, and you can pick up a lot of knowledge very quickly. You can become a world expert in specific parts of the climate tech revolution much quicker just by being exposed. So first be exposed. There's hundreds of events in every city in the world that are happening. Uh, and choose where you want to make an impact on, on the advocacy, on the technology, on the operation, on the finance. All of it needs talent uh, and no shortage of jobs. Great. Brilliant. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I uh, want to be kind of respectful of your time. That's been a really interesting conversation. And uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. It's been great. Thank you very much for joining us on that conversation. Hope that you enjoyed it. Hope that you uh, learned something. Uh, if you did enjoy it, please feel free to leave a five-star review and to subscribe to any of our channels. And we'll be sure to keep you updated on future productions. This series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. These are conversations that you just can't afford to miss.